This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool. Come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Well, well, well. What a monumental week it has been, and a roller coaster ride of emotion and anticipation and disappointment and then elation and then, my word, just, uh, well, I'm talking about the release of the JFK files, of course, and the long awaited uh, release, and it happened this week. Now, uh, Alex Jones reporting earlier today that among the documents released is a report by the Surgeon General at the time and the CIA, that JFK was shot from the front, side, and back. Now, most people with a functioning cerebral cortex who actually viewed the Zapruder film came to that conclusion a long time ago, but now it would appear it has been officially confirmed. Uh, but we will get to, um, to discussing those documents in the second hour of the program when assassination researcher James D. Eugenio will be here. Uh, coming up next, Christian mystic John Francis will be here to talk about the global brain conspiracy and the mystic way of radiant love, alchemy for a new creation. Uh, before we get started, as always, uh, let me introduce the boys in the band. On the Gibson Flying V guitar, Ian Robertson, our technical producer. Here in studio on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, Albert Vinzel, story producer, and on the Hammond B3 feature producer, Ryan White. All right now, are you ready for a journey to the center of your mind and the center of your soul? Uh, Back in 1975, John Francis had a profound near-death experience that permanently expanded his mind out of its previous limited rational boundaries. He now views life as a highly purposeful and multidimensional evolutionary expression of one universal consciousness. John has advanced training in physics, engineering, psychology, and religious studies. 
His areas of metaphysical expertise include sacred geometry, spiritual self-defense, peace transmission, and heart-centered meditation. Furthermore, he has deciphered numerical codes that unlock the deepest secrets of key religious scriptures. He is the founder and director of the Center for Mystical Theology and is also uh, the author of The Mystic Way of Radiant Love, Alchemy for a New Creation. Let me hold that up for the people who are watching our YouTube channel. And furthermore, he has a, uh, a new book, a uh, soon-to-be-published e-book, 100 Secrets, Hidden Wisdom for Spiritual Transformation. And when not teaching, John lives as a contemplative hermit in the mountains of Northern California. How do I get that job? I would love to be a contemplative hermit. John, John Francis, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm doing much better than Skype. <laughs> All right. Well, we're glad to have you aboard. Uh, right. Well, uh, are you having difficulty with Skype? Because we can... Uh, uh, I dropped out right before you, right before you called me, right as you called me. But uh, I'm on cell now, so if that, that's fine. It'll work for a while. Excellent. I can I can get back on. It's just, you know, one of those things. Let me uh, let me ask you about uh, life as a contemplative hermit. What does that yeah. entail exactly? Well, it's not as austere as it may sound. Uh, that book was written 20 years ago. Right. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, on the, on the back of the cover. And basically I had a main, you know, a regular job. I lived in the world. I taught at the college, all that stuff. It was just, I did spend a lot of time, um, at a very nice place in the redwoods in the mountains. Uh, and that's where I did a lot of my meditation and writing. And that's where I actually wrote the, uh, the book, The Mystic Way of Radiant Love. That's out of print now, but, um, so, you know. I just put that in there <laughs> because that's sort of the way I was living. Sure. Um, L- yeah. Let me uh, let me let yeah. me go back to your. Um, you served in the Seventh Fleet in the Navy. What what uh, rank were you? I was a Lieutenant JG. Um, uh, that was a very very interesting uh, experience. During the uh, I didn't expect that to be a turn in my life, but after I graduated from college, I was in graduate school, and so, well, as soon as I graduated, in those days, you I was during the Vietnam War. I lost my draft deferment, and uh, uh, the only lottery I ever won just happened to be the lottery to be drafted. <laughs> there you go. So I was number 27, and uh, number one would be the best. So they, so they, I said, well, I think I'd uh, like to be on a ship. Um, so that's what happened. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so and, and then in, in seven, 1975, you have this what you've described as a profound near-death experience, although I, I can't imagine any near-death experience would be anything but profound. Uh, Correct. What, uh, so uh, tell me about that. What happened in 1975? Okay. First of all, I had been out of the Navy for a couple of years. I was in graduate school um, going for a Ph.D. in experimental psychology. I was doing my research on human memory. And I was getting ready to present, uh, you know, the, the, the paper, of the research I was going to do for my, for my doctoral dissertation. And I was trying, one day I was trying to decide which of two theories is uh, true, theory A or B. We don't have to go into the details right now. And so I got into a very introspective state of consciousness and went back and forth between the two theories. And finally I said, what is truth? You know, I got to the point where I I had to ask what is truth to decide which theory I would support. And I got 
repeating that to myself inwardly uh, for like hours at a time. And what happened was, I understand now what fully happened was, I basically gave my brain a, a question that it couldn't answer. <laughs> it short-circuited. <laughs> but yeah, it blew a circuit, literally. I mean, literally it blew a circuit in the brain, and of course the brain is connected to the body, so the whole body was essentially caught on fire in a sense, uh, literally, a spiritual type of a fire. And I had no preparation for, for this type of a situation. I, first of all, I never used drugs either. I was, you know, I don't even take aspirins. And I had no background in metaphysics. So I just laid down and I tried to fall asleep because I had a big day the next day. I said, well, maybe this will help. And to make a long story short, I, I, it became very, very, even thoughts became painful in that state. And what happened was I discovered that if I put my attention between thoughts, I got some relief from the uh, intense suffering I was in. And that sort of helped. And then at one point I got very deep and I just, you know, prayed to God. I said, I can't, I don't, can't take this anymore. And I just totally let go at a very, very deep level. And when I did that, I got sucked right into my spine, into the spine, right up the top of the head. And off we went to the races. Uh, uh, <laughs> it was totally unexpected. I hovered a little bit above my head. I, I understand now I was in the astral plane. I felt myself, um, I felt a ring of beings surrounding me, and they were beaming love, rays of love, like laser beams, right into the center of my chest. That gave me a tremendous amount of courage. I let go even more, and I went up into what they call the third heaven, and um, that was uh, that was that was the beginning of my journey. Wow! Now, help me. You have the background in metaphysics. I do not, although I I, I talk about yeah. it on the air from time to time. But no. the differentiate between a near death experience and an out of body experience, because I mean, were you clinically? Okay. Is there any way of knowing were you clinically dead for a period of time? No. Okay. Okay. That's that's. Uh, I understand th th this point. And I could have called it a lot of different things. Um, you know, technically, I got to a point in, the, in this experience where if I, I felt that if I had let go even deeper, I wouldn't come back. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I was near the boundary between coming back and not coming back. And so... You know, one could call it a cosmic experience, but it was I was out of the body initially, and then I went to, um, you know, a state of pure consciousness. And so, you know, most near-death experiences, uh, very interestingly, it was the next year, 1976, that Raymond Moody came out with his book, the term near-death experience. Right. I certainly didn't know about it. And so most of the experiences you you hear regarding near, called near-death experiences, someone either has a severe illness or an accident or, or something like that happens. Right. Mine was more, I would call it a spiritual emergency that had happened. And it's the same thing, but the dynamics are the same, really, because in both cases, I think in a traditional near-death experience, one is forced into it because the body just shuts down because of the trauma or the illness. In my case, I let go of the body consciously, willfully. And so 
but the consequences are both the same. The process is, is the same, one of being drawn into the central channel, the spinal column, which is why I understand now why people often say they're going through a tunnel. Um, so Interesting. Yeah, so the, a, that tunnel is the journey up the spine into what some might realm. call the crown chakra or... Right through the crown chakra. Right. Sometimes people go through the third eye. I went through the crown. It depends. Uh, but, the, you know, the terrain, is this, this, the, the terrain is the same regardless of how you get there. Some people have this experience in meditation. Um, you know, so the journey is basically the same. It's what triggers it that's different. And I think everyone who has this so-called near-death experience, it has a, 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 they're all unique. Did you and come so back? Used, Sorry, John. But did you? I, I use the term near-death experience as sort of a shorthand that people can relate to. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, rather than having to describe all the details. So that's basically. Is, is that pretty clear? It's it's crystal clear. Uh, John right. Francis is with us, the author of The Mystic Way of Radiant Love: Alchemy for a New Creation, and uh, his soon-to-be-released ebook, One Hundred Secrets: Hidden Wisdom for a Spiritual transformation. We're heading into a break. Let me ask you the question now. We'll, we'll begin the conversation and continue it after the break. But you went right. into this near-death experience as a result of sort of a, um, a short circuit over this question, <laughs> what is truth? Well, when you came back into your body, were you any closer uh, to getting that answer? And did you receive the answer while out of the body? We'll, we will uh, address that on the other side, literally and figuratively, I suppose. This is Richard Serrett. Some might say I'm having a near-life experience, and we will come back with John Francis right here on The Conspiracy Show. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. John Francis is with us. The Mystic Way of Radiant Love, Alchemy for a New Creation. So, after this near-death experience, you, uh, you snapped back into your body. Uh, is that yeah. the way it happens? Uh, yeah, by the way, I had another near-death experience during the break with Skype, but that's another story. <laughs> right. uh, okay, what happened, the answer to your question about... Um, what is you know, truth? Like, the answer, and the answer to the question was, whatever gets you to this state, that's truth. Whatever and gets you to this state? The state of oneness with the universe, okay. pure consciousness, whatever gets you there. And I understand the reason. I was at... You know, when I was going through this process initially, I was a very rational person. I had no background in metaphysics, no meditation, no drugs, nothing. Just I was trained in physics and mathematics and engineering. And I thought truth was like a, an idea or a mathematical formula. You see, and that's what I was trying for truth. And the, and the answer I got was, that's not what truth is with a capital T. Truth with a capital T is something that one experiences or something that one merges with. Um, it's not something you can, can capture in an idea. But you believe in an do you believe in an objective truth? Yes. Yeah. I'm not one of those people that believes everything is subjective. <laughs> That's uh, 
uh, there's an absolute truth, an absolute reality. I believe in God, by the way, but, you know, not somebody with a little gray beard. Uh, and I believe there's, you know, God exists whether I believe in God or not. So that's an object, you know, that's an absolute, there's absolute realities. Right. But one, what one can have a relative experience of it, you know, within the brain. We, hopefully we will get to that, where the, where the brain fits into this whole process. Yes, I do want to get to that, and also the sort of the, um, you know, sure, the, sure. Uh, the, the soul and so forth. But I, I want to ask you, yeah. as a, why a Christian, why a Christian mystic? Why not a Buddhist? Why not a Kabbalist? Why not a Hindu? Why not a Jew? Why a Christian mystic? Okay, well, I was raised Christian, first of all. Okay. And at the time, though, I really, that I had this experience, I was more of a scientist and not, you know, religion was something that, uh, that wasn't really like most, you know, I don't want to say this, but it wasn't, you know, the central, I had like this, my belief systems came from science. <laughs> And uh, because that's how I was raised, and, and, you know, religion was something, you know, for Sunday. But what happened from this experience is when I came down from this experience, the thought came into my mind, or the saying, If thine eye be single, thy body shall be full of light. Uh, You know, I wasn't a Bible student at the time, but I... When I heard that, I was aware that it was from the Bible, and instantly when I had that experience, I had the insight that there was a whole nother level to the Bible, a deeper level beyond the symbols and metaphors that was conveying, conveying a very profound truth and profound truths, but they've been lost because we've been taught in what I call brain theology— to just take a literal interpretation of everything. So, you know, that was something that I rejected, the literal interpretation, and that's all I thought there was. But after this experience, I realized that then I be single, body be full of light. That was an actual description of a mystical state where light enters into the mind and body and soul. So I then got a very deep appreciation of what was in the, the Bible. And actually, as I've gone deeper and deeper into into the mystical path, I actually appreciate at the very center of all traditions, I find there's a common core to all of them. And, um, and some fundamental you know, differences. And some fundamental differences, but actually the differences that exist exist more when you talk to people that are into dogmas. And, uh, but when you, you speak to... Um, a Christian or a Buddhist or a Kabbalist or a yogi or a Hindu, you know, when I speak to them personally, asking them questions, mm-hmm. which we're going to discuss tonight, I find that those who go deep within themselves, we have a common experience. In other words, the inner life is the same, the, the cosmology, the cosmos is the same, regardless of what you call yourself. That doesn't change by our beliefs. So... The people that are most into interior, the interior life and experiencing inner realities, 
We agree. Mystics tend to agree. <laughs> All right, let's talk about uh, the, the anatomy uh, of the soul. And I, I wanted, as a point of departure, talk about one of uh, Jesus' parables because you say yeah. that these parables are just rich with, with mysticism and, and, so, and this has been overlooked. So if we talk Correct. about, for example, Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, how does that relate, uh, how does that relate to the anatomy of the soul? That's wonderful. You're getting right to the point of it. Point, no pun intended. <laughs> the singularity, the as it were. Yes, and the mustard seed, actually, it's, it's interesting. I wrote that book 20 years ago, and what happened was when I was writing that book, I had a very profound meditation experience. Now, that book was written in 97, which is almost over 20 years after my near death, but I had a very ex- profound experience one day when I became aware of a, of a deep point within the center of my consciousness. And I thought to myself, is this the mustard seed in the, that was mentioned in the Bible? And, you know, I just put that question out there, and two, about two or three days later, I was walking down in town. Actually, it was in Santa Cruz, California, and they had a bookstore called Logos, they still do, Logos Books, Logos is very interesting for those who know what the Greek word means. It's the, the word. word of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the word. So I went into the bookstore and in the metaphysical section, and a book, I think, believe it, literally fell off the shelf. It either fell off or hang off, whatever it was, it jumped out at me. I opened the book, and I opened to a page, and what it was, it was a book that was comparing uh, metaphors and across different tr- spiritual traditions. And I opened to the page where it talked about the mustard seed, and I practically fell over, you know. And it appears in different traditions. It appears as the center point of the soul. In the Upanishads in India, they talk about uh, the true self is smaller than a grain of rice, smaller than a barley seed, and then it says smaller than a mustard seed. Hmm. And so it's the point within the, there's a point within the center of the soul which is a point where the individual soul makes contact with the universal God. It's the point of contact. It's also not only a point of contact, but it is literally a seed. There's a number of seed parables in the Bible and in other traditions. And Meister Eckhart said, pear seeds grow into pear trees, and God seeds grow into God. So... What he's telling us, that's a mystic who got into a lot of trouble with the church, uh, Meister Eckhart. Yes, yes. Because he was talking like that. And the idea is, my understanding is that consciousness is an infinite field with an infinite number of points within it. Each point can grow uh, in a fractal way to, you know, grow into, um, into a godlike being because we're made in the image and likeness of God. That potential is within us. And it's very interesting. That, so I got that confirmation. That was a book and different scriptures, and then I found it mustard seeds scripture in Buddhism and other traditions. It's in the Kabbalah. And, and just recently I, I read a poem by St. John of the Cross, a great Christian mystic. It's called The Living Flame of Love, and he described an experience he had where in meditation his whole soul became inflamed. And he said in this poem that this inflaming of his soul began from the center of his soul, that's his words, and he said that center is the mustard seed. So right there that told me that he understood the meaning of that parable in a very mystical and inner way. 
And, of course, he didn't come out and say that. That's what the parable meant, because if he did that, he probably would have been taken to the... Um, well, they have a nice some devices there where they strap. What do they call that? I forget what it's called, but the rack. Been, <laughs> yeah, the rack. He would have been in trouble. So they have it in, and uh, uh, yeah. So that's um, so. That's a long answer to your question, but you hit at the one at the top. It's extremely important. This idea that when in each of us there's a seed. And uh, there's another parable that Jesus talked about. He said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it shall abide alone. And that is a sense describing the human condition. The human condition is that consciousness projects these points into matter. And this planet is a very harsh planet, and there are many challenges. And these challenges, when we respond to them with love, from the from our center of our being, that this seed starts to germinate, and we um, we grow into the divine being. It's it's the process of theosis, which I know you're familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, which means that in the Greek in the Orthodox tradition it means divinization, and that's our destiny. We're on Earth for spiritual evolution, and we're at a time in the point of this in our planet's evolution where many people will. Uh, are starting to consciously participate in this process of unfolding into the next level of human uh, evolution. And the idea of the idea of, of um, you know our divine our divine beings our divine selves uh, has that not is there not a danger there of of perverting that message into thinking or to likening ourselves as gods. Uh, which is, I think, really at the root of the transhumanist movement and so forth? Ah, great. I'm glad we're getting into that. You're reading my mind. You're on the same track. Uh, well, first of all, we, we don't become human unless we cultivate those divine potential within us. And that means love, and that involves grace. But, you know, Jesus said, ye are gods, and the things I do, you shall do in greater. So the danger is when the ego, the false self, which is located in the brain, the true self is located in the spiritual heart as a, as a point which unfolds. And right, transhumanism is a very, in my opinion, a misguided, uh, a misguided attempt to achieve our divine potential. It's something that's coming from the human brain, the false self. It, it, you know, it, it has a glimmering of a potential in how we could be more than how limited we are as humans. Yet the idea that you're going to do it by enhancing the brain, by attaching it to computers, by doing all these other ideas, uh, creating a global brain, which in, in my estimation, the natural brain is already part of a simulated reality. Now they want to create a a simulation within a simulation, artificial intelligence, which is going to take us farther away from our divine potential and what we could become. It's, it's, um, you know, it's atheism gone trying to become gods. I think that's where the danger is, and it's it's some it's a direction where 
there's, there's really a battle going on on the planet now. Which, what, where, which direction are we going to go in? Are we going to go in the direction of the transhumanists, which are basically uh, wanting to turn the whole planet and us into you know, automatons? Uh, yeah, I call them flesh, flesh robots. robots. Flesh robots. Yeah, in other flesh words, robots, they can be yeah. controlled. And the, see, the brain, this goes back to the Garden of Eden. There were two trees in the Garden of Eden, which is very important to discuss now, because that, that particular story or myth, and myth does not mean something that's false. It means something that's not, you know, literally true, but has great mystical significance. There are two trees in that garden, the tree of the Garden of Good and Evil, which, um, you know, we all know the story. And we're told that it's an apple tree, or we're told it doesn't matter what the tree is. Uh, they disobeyed the command, and for that they have to suffer, and everything else has to suffer on earth for all, you know, wherever. But mystical, the mystical understanding of that tree, from my research, and inner and cross cross-cultural and interreligious, is that it refers to the human nervous system, this tree, and the brain in particular. It's the knowledge of good and evil because it's what it gives us the experience of duality, of pleasure and pain, of the, all the, the suffering that we have. And the tree of life is, if you want to get physical, you could call it the circulatory system and the heart, but actually it's deeper than that. There's a spiritual heart that's deeper than the physical body, that's deeper than the soul, that's actually, you know, an extension of the divine. Um, it's spiritual. There's three levels, physical, psychic, and um, spiritual, just like there's the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. And, the, you know, and then the question comes, why did God put this tree in the middle of the brain, nervous system, which is just inherently, it has what's called a negativity bias, or... Uh, psychologists these days have coined that term, and what they've discovered is the brain is inherently wired to be fearful, to pay more attention to the negatives in the environment than the positives, because if you miss a banana one time on a tree, you're not going to die. But if you miss a tiger in the woods one time, that may be the end. So it's hardwired to be negative. It's hardwired to be fearful. It's hardwired to be... Um, Work to worry and so forth. So John, I got to jump in here because we have uh, some music coming up under me, which means we are heading into a break. On the other side, we'll uh, continue this conversation. The Mystic Way of Radiant Love, Alchemy for a New Creation. Christian mystic John Francis, my guest. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. 
October 26th marked the federal government's, uh, the U.S. federal government's, a deadline to release the 3,100 unseen files, um, a deadline that was set by Congress in 1992 under the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act, and uh, the documents uh, have been held in the National Archives, and uh, most of those are already already public. However, we will uh, delve into some of the more interesting aspects of this latest release, Uh, when James D. Eugenio, assassination researcher, joins us after the uh, top of the hour. Right now, John Francis stays with us, Christian mystic and the author of Radiant Love, The Mystic Way of Radiant Love, Alchemy for uh, the New Creation. Just because time is tight and obviously some of these metaphysical ideas are, 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 well, most of them are complex and require a long time. But we were talking about uh, the uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and uh, the tree of life from the uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, so, sort of in a what you're saying is that sort of metaphorically, or um, I guess in a, in a way, it's a metaphor. The tree of knowledge of good and evil that's that's the brain, and the heart. Uh, the tree of life is the heart mind, uh, which I guess is centered in in the soul. Getting back to that mustard seed, correct? No. Oh. Um, this is a, um, and you know there are questions like who we are. Um, I would answer that question in a, in a core of our being, we're, we're we're consciousness and we're at one with God. I don't subscribe to the notion that we're separate from God. We may feel separate from God. We may be estranged from God. But at the very core of our being, in consciousness, you know, there's no separation. So it's a question of re. Um, Regaining that awareness and that central point, that you know, the, 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 you know, the fine point of the soul, as uh, as it's called, is surrounded by various bodies. We have a physical, we have a um, well, to simplify it, a mental body, emotional body, and a physical body. And even in the Garden of Eden, this is mentioned because it says there that God, when when He cast Adam and Eve out from the garden, He covered them with um, Coats of skin. Now, people take that literally and think that God went around and skinned some poor animals and clothed them because he didn't want to look at their naked bodies. <laughs> uh, but actually, um, Bishop Origen, one of the early church fathers, that first, uh, I believe, the first century or around there, first century, second century, he interpreted that, he understood the meaning of that, that it refers to these different layers. Uh, in Kabbalah, they call them Kelly. Kalipats. They're just layers, and they're called koshas in, in, in yoga. They're different layers that we have to our body. We have a physical, a psychic layer with the astral plane and so forth. And at the very core of our being is the spiritual, the mustard seed, if you want to call it that, or a star seed. And the purpose of being encapsulated in that, in other words, at the core of our being is a tree of life, and then we have a nervous system on the surface, which is this tree that gives us the experiences of pleasure and pain and suffering and so forth. And how these two work together is that the the suffering that comes from this, uh, you can think of it almost like a a virtual reality suit that's placed around our spiritual essence, uh, that the challenges of life, the positives and the negatives, when we respond to them spiritually from our heart with love, 
then the seed grows. St. Teresa of Avila talked about the enlargement of the heart, how we literally grow spiritually when we respond spiritually from the heart to the challenges of the world. Uh, if we react, which is different from responding, if we react to the world, in other words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, then we're just caught up in the matrix. We're caught up in the matrix and we really don't grow spiritually. And what, what happens is if someone hits us and we hit them back, then we're going to get another hit, and then the negative energy comes back to us maybe more than originally, and so we have another opportunity to respond to that positively, and then we'll grow again. So these so, these added layers yeah. um, came after what, what what we refer to as the fall of man, when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. First of all, what then what is that business of of uh, you know partaking of the fruit from the tree of good and evil? I mean, I'm, I guess I'm a bit of a literalist when it comes to, to Genesis and, and, uh, and the yeah. garden, and I'm thinking that, you know, there's some carnal act with the, the serpent, the, you know, the shining one, Satan. Uh, that's, that's what got them kicked out. What, what, what do you think it was? Um, you know, basically, you know, the rabbis and the early Christian mystics, they all understood um, St. Augustine. You know, when you read them, they all understood that it's metaphysical. I mean, that it's, excuse me, I mean, um, metaphorical. They understood it was never to be taken literally. There are different levels on which you can interpret something. You can get a moral understanding, a psychological lesson, or a spiritual. And what it basically is telling us about how deceptive the experience we get through our five senses can be, how deceptive it is, and how when you are enticed by the five senses to look for happiness in the five senses, which can only give us conditional happiness. In other words, when the external conditions are in just the right way, we have just enough money and the relationships and everything else, when those conditions, the weather is just right, then we're happy. And then any of those things change, we're unhappy. That's conditional happiness. So that's the, the temptation of this, this tree of so-called positive and negative, good and evil. That's the temptation to, to eat from that tree, to think it's going to give you nourishment and happiness and fulfillment. Uh, so this is the way it's, it's interpreted. Why is the serpent, you know, that's a long story about how it relates to certain energies in the body and so forth. Um, All right, let me know, jump in here because this was a short segment, John. We'll come back and uh, continue to talk about... Uh, I guess the separation, man, from God, because we continue to live in our brain. And we'll talk about this electronic global brain that has been emerging here on planet Earth uh, and how that widens the chasm, if you will, between uh, humanity and God. And I guess how we get back to the how we get back to the garden. And uh, I guess the path uh, is through the mustard seed, perhaps. John Francis uh, stays with us. The Mystic Way of Radiant Love, Alchemy for a New Creation. And just a reminder, top of the hour, James DiEugenio will delve into the JFK Files. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, 
Here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. John Francis is with us. And uh, let me give the... Um, let me give John. Give us the website. Uh, your website. Okay. Um, I assume you have a link on, on your website. If you click on that link, I don't have a website per se, but if you click on the link, it'll take you to a another a website where my article on uh, centering in the heart is, which is very good to read. And you click on that article, and it's on page five. You'll get my um, email address. You can read the article, and the first 100 people that respond to the email, I will send them a pre-publication free ebook of this upcoming ebook. 100 uh, Secrets: Hidden Wisdom for Spiritual Transformation. Right. Excellent. I will send that. It may take a few weeks. Well, a few weeks or months. They'll get it, and even if they go over the hundred, if they read my article and maybe send me, write me a few sentences to show me that they read it. You know, here's the professor coming out. Uh, show me that they, they read it. I'll you know I'll go over the limit. I won't um, deprive any anyone. All right. Um, so anyone anyone can email me, and I'll, I'll share what, all the things I have to share. So let's talk a, a, a little bit about uh, the brain again, and um, the idea that we that perhaps this separation between man and God is a result of us you know living completely in our brains. The idea Correct. that we believe the mind and consciousness is centered in the brain. Um, and then we have, of course, uh, the, uh, the uh, as you call it, the, the electronic global brain that has been emerging on planet Earth for over the last half century, uh, almost re- sort of replacing our central nervous system, the Internet, and uh, all of our electronic gadgets and satellites and so forth. And, and um, I think McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan used to talk about this, how it has really pulled us outside of our bodies. Our central nervous system, is, it's not our spine anymore. It's, it's out there. Do you know what very, I'm saying? Very well, very well said, Richard. You said it perfectly. You, you've got it perfectly. Uh, our brain, even our brain does have, you know... Th- and the potential to be connected to our heart. In the ideal situation of being enlightened, the brain becomes the tool or the instrument of the spiritual heart, the core of our being. And um, there's a story of Moses leading the people to the promised land. Moses could take the people only to the very edge to look at it, but he had to die, and his brother Aaron had to complete the journey. Aaron was the, the priest. So he was the one who was the mystic and had a direct connection, whereas Moses symbolizes the rational mind following the laws, the letter of the law. So there's a meta- there's an explanation for that right there. So what we have to do and what the mystics say is to recenter ourselves out of the brain and into the spiritual heart. And they do that by uh, the different techniques. Now, not all meditation, the word meditation literally means being returned to the center. M-E-D means center. So it literally means being returned to the center. But it's very important to understand that not all meditation takes us to our center. 
a lot of meditations are there's all different types, and some come from a certain philosophy that says all life is an illusion, and we just need to escape from it. Annihilation, so, right? Yeah, annihilation. So people don't realize that because initially all forms of meditation seem to give a little bit of peace, and that's sort of like an anesthesia, and that's all people want. You know, they don't want to take the edge off the day in a little meditation. Annihilation but, or nihilism. That's correct, and that's the big. That's the problem I see is that people don't under people have lost the vision of the purpose of life where there is no vision that people perish, and so they're simply using meditation as a tool as a, to sort of uh, you know smooth out the rough edges of the day when they come home from you know the factory or whatever they're doing, and then they go back you know into the rat race again. Whereas rather than being really getting at the purpose of life, so. The type of meditation that I uh, discussed in that article, it's on the Center for World Networking, cfwn.org, Center for World Networking. Uh, it talks about bringing the attention down to the heart. And uh, what I, there's a group of mystics called Hesychas from the uh, Christian Orthodox tradition that talk about bringing the attention down from the head to the heart. Uh, uh, saint Theophan, the recluse, a great Orthodox saint, gave excellent, his sort of contemporary, gave excellent book, I think it's called The Art of Prayers in there, how to bring your attention down to the heart, be aware of the breathing, and so forth. So an actual shift takes place, when he said you start the day off getting into your heart, and, and, the, and the aspiration is to go throughout the whole day, centered from the heart, the brain becomes the servant. But with this artificial intelligence and the global electronic brain and all these smartphones, phones, and gadgets that take people's attention outward, and, and studies have now come out showing that people, young people are getting depressed by getting you know, externalized that. It's taking us one step further from the heart. Yeah, it's a, like a cosmic loneliness. Correct. It's... Uh, it's, it's it's all, um, you know, artificial friends. Oh, I've got a thousand friends, but you really don't have any friends. Uh, it's, it's, but at the root of this is that we, are, we have been cut off from the divine. That's the, at the root of it. I mean, that's really what we're talking that's, about. Exactly. That's the battle that I see going on on this planet. It's a battle for the soul. In other words, the god of technology is being worshipped. And, you, you know, you know the people in the media now that are coming forth with billions of dollars, and that's the vision they want to—they uh, want us all to follow. And the problem is, they control ultimately the food and the resources. So you know, it's just the mark of the beast in sort of a metaphorical sense. In other words, if you don't go along with the technology, artificial world where the food is all controlled and artificially created, we're gradually losing our freedom to to be spirit to pursue our spiritual. Destiny. We're given. We're being given an artificial destiny, an artificial um, future, uh, right. a reality, and people are, are being enticed by this instead of going within and contacting our true being in our heart. So and the the idea that we can we can we can realize a paradise, heaven here on earth, uh, by um, by radiating this love. Uh, how do how do we how how is this achieved? Uh, you know what happens is our physical, you know that's that's the ideal, you know that's the ideal, and 
it's, we can realize that before the Earth is transformed, too, because if we pass on, there are, we can function in the higher realms, that paradise already exists on the higher realms. So that's another story. But life, the Earth can be much better than it is now. And the way it happens is it's called grace. Uh, the matter right now is being controlled by certain physical laws, okay? We have to eat to sustain ourselves. But it is possible that when the matter in our bodies are become um, coherent and synchronized uh, and resonant with the grace, the radiant sun, at, at the center of our being there's a radiant sun, which is, uh, you know, an image of the div divine sun, that the molecules in our body can actually, our body can, different laws take over the body. And there have been saints. I mentioned uh, Therese Neumann. There have been a number of saints who my book was dedicated to. She was, you know, contemporary saint who, don't, who didn't eat. There are saints that have been demonstrated not to eat because they live, they learn, their bodies learn to live by light. So it's possible uh, to live from the tree of life. But it takes a lot of discipline, and it takes a science. And the whole Bible, from one end to the other, is the science of how to be transformed into a being of light, to undergo the process of theosis, as the orthodox term, the Greek term for it, theosis. And uh, we're not being taught that. We're not being taught the, the meditation and the various practices that that can do that. Instead, we're given artif artificial technologies. We're given artificial food, we're given all these, uh, you know, the idea of freezing your brain is absolutely ridiculous. The right. mind is not in the brain. The no. brain is just a, uh, you know, so we're being totally, as a society, deluded because we've lost the vision of what the, what the let's talk about the Bible, it's true of other scriptures too, but the Bible is a code book. All the parables of Jesus, I've decoded all of them, each one of them, it's a, it's a coherent system for uh, you know, not hiding your light under a bushel basket, but for being transformed. It's the next stage of human evolution. Do you think uh, 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 Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection is him demonstrating the, uh, him demonstrating how we be, are to become beings of light? Correct. That's exactly that's it. It involves the angelic realm. There's a whole science to it. And uh, just reading about it or attending workshops is not going to do it. You actually have to do the discipline of being, you know, transfigured. And so that's the alternative. It's either doing that or buying into the transhumanism, which is giving us a deception. It's a great deception of um, um, trying to achieve greatness, which is it's not going to lead that, because you can't do it without being connected to the divine light at the core of our being. Um, John, I've, I've enjoyed our, uh, our hour together immensely. Thank you so much for this. And uh, again, we'll look forward to your soon-to-be-published e-book, 100 Secrets, Hidden Wisdom for Spiritual Transformation. And again, uh, if people go to uh, my website, strangeplanet.ca and uh, the radio show, just click on John's name. That links to a website. They'll find the article there and an email address. And uh, they get if the first 100 people who respond indicating that they've read the article. Uh, you'll send them a, a, a preview of the, of the e-book, correct? 
Correct. They'll get it. They'll get the whole. They get the exact same thing. They'll just send it to them as an attachment. And and if more than a hundred come and, they, and they're sincere and they, you know, they can twist me to give out more. <laughs> Excellent. All right, John. Thank you so much for this. Don't no be deprived. I'm sorry for the technical difficulties, but um, there is a force out there that that has a different agenda than the spiritual one. And I'm so, glad you mentioned that. I believe that 100 percent, sir. Thank yeah. you. I've done three hours of interviews. On, you know, it hasn't happened before, so I think we got the word out. We we won. We do. I've we've seen the movie before. We know who wins in the end. It's the good guys. All right, John. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. James DiEugenio, assassination researcher, will pour over the JFK files next on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long truck, long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special how-do to all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, Zuma Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM. Hi to all of you who hear this transmission on one of our affiliate stations across North America. The podcast, of course, please check it out at TalkZone.com. Those of you who take the show with you on your mobile device and the with the uh, Conspiracy Show and Zoomer radio apps, both free downloads, by the by. Uh, those of you who watch this radio program on the YouTube live stream. And uh, those loyal fans of the show who reside in the live YouTube chat room every week. However, and wherever you're listening and watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. U.S. President Donald Trump released over 2,800 records Thursday night. Well, I should say the U.S. Uh, the National Archives did um, in an effort to comply with uh, a 1992 law mandating the document's release. Um, but roughly 300 files classified out of concern for U.S. national security, law enforcement and foreign relations were held back in a memo uh, Trump directed agencies that requested redactions to review their reasons for keeping the record secret within 100 days. And uh, we are about to pour over some of these uh, documents over the next hour. And um, some interesting things uh, have come forward so far. Uh, here, here is a number of them from the newest release of JFK Files. Former CIA director LBJ thought Kennedy assassination... The, the Kennedy assassination was payback for the assassination of, of the uh, Vietnam president, president of South Vietnam. The CIA considered using the mafia to kill Castro. And a memo from Hoover details Soviets' shock and consternation after Kennedy's death. And the FBI received an Oswald death threat the day before his murder. Also, Kennedy considered creating a bounty system that valued Castro at two cents. Uh, some other interesting things as well, and we'll, uh, we'll get to that in a moment with James DiEugenio, but later or earlier today, actually, Alex Jones um, was reporting, and you may have seen this as well, that one of the documents released came from the uh, U.S. Surgeon General and the CIA confirming that Kennedy was shot in the, from the front, the side, and the back. 
All right, so to discuss and pour over these uh, documents, we welcome back to the program uh, the author of Destiny Betrayed, James D. Eugenio, and uh, also um, that was published in 1992. There's a, a, a second greatly revised edition that was um, published in 2012. He's also the author of Reclaiming Parkland, which was published in 2013, reissued in expanded form in 2016. He's also the co-author and editor of The Assassinations, Probe magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. He co-edited Probe from 1993 to 2000, was a guest commentator on the anniversary issue of the film JFK, and which was uh, released by Warner Brothers back in 2013. He also has an MA in Contemporary American History from California State University Northridge and uh, is a specialist in the history and theory of cinema. He's written numerous film reviews. He's a frequent contributor at Robert Perry's Consortium News. He's appeared on as a guest on uh, numerous talk shows, including this one, and of course uh, with me on Coast to Coast AM as well. Uh, he's recently retired after 30 years as a professional educator, and uh, we should point out the website. It's a good one, kennedysandking.com. Jim D. Eugenio, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good, good evening. Good evening, Richard. So, um, you, know, you know, something I, 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 I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things you said in the, in the intro because you're the first show that is going to get what's really going on with these documents. And it's really, really bizarre and the mainstream media is completely inadequate, you know, to handle this. Um, there's about maybe 15 people in all of America who actually know what's going on with this thing. And I happen to have a friend in New Mexico, a guy named Gary Majewski, who's actually downloaded all this stuff. Okay, and, and we've actually gone over a lot of it. All right. And when they say that Trump released something like 2,800 new documents have been formally withheld, uh, that's, that's not the case. It doesn't look like that's the case at all. It, it, and, and I'm going to say something else. A lot of these documents that were released on Thursday evening, they still have redactions in them. Do I have to explain what that is? Do you, does your audience know what they that do. means? They do. They do, yes. Okay, all and- right. They still have redactions in them. Which is shocking. All right. Because I mean, after fifty-four years, what on earth do you have to redact anymore? Precisely. You know. Precisely. Okay. It, it, it it's a really strange thing that's going on, and uh, I'm going to do an article about this for Bob Perry because I have to do some research on it. I have to consult with a few other people. But even in spite of that, even in spite of that. You know, but I, I feel like, you know, your show has to get the scoop on that first. I appreciate okay? that. Okay. All right. Um, even in spite of that, the the stuff that's been reported, you know, on the mainstream media uh, is not really – a lot of it isn't new. Okay? <laughs> a lot of it isn't new. A lot of it is just a part of, uh, you know, of an unfolding uh, – that a document that had been released before but but – is now being released in a cut-down form, okay, like the thing about Richard Helms 
being asked about the CIA, Oswald and the CIA, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they played that up to the hilt. Uh, you know, what's his name? Wolf Blitzer actually did a segment on that. On oh, the, the idea that the F, that, that the, it was Oswald's connections to the FBI was, were investigated. No, no, to, to, to the CIA. Oh, to the CIA, as, and there were no if, connections. As, right. as if Richard Helms was going to say, yeah, he was a CIA agent mm. the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, of, of course not. And that... That document was released several years ago, and he did den- – he, of course, denied that he was – that Oswald was a CIA contact, all right? But, the, but, but let, let me get into some of the stuff that the mainstream media uh, ha- has ignored, before you, which I think – Before you do that, Jim, can I ask you about this one? Because to me, uh, I mean this is, this is potentially huge. If uh, I want to ask you about – a report on Alex Jones uh, earlier today in, in which he held up a document uh, from the Surgeon General of the United States at the time and the CIA, and, and it says in the document that they are confirming that Kennedy was shot from the front and the side. What do you make of that? I, 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 I read that document. I don't read it that way at all. Ah. That's, that's a, 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 an FBI notice of a speech that some Cuban exile made something like two or three months after the assassination. And they're quoting him. The only people who had access to Kennedy's body was not the Surgeon General. It was the three autopsy doctors there in Bethesda that night. Right. Okay, so I don't know where he got this, that somehow the Surgeon General (laughs) would have access to Kennedy's body. So... You know, I, I think I think that's a misreading of the document. All right. But, of course, All we right. already know he was shot from the front and the side and the back. Well, yeah, so. there's a lot of different other reasons why you can say that. Right. Which are, you know, which are a lot more reliable. Okay. Okay. So so can I get into some, yes, some of the actual documents actually do say? Yes. All right. Okay. Now, uh, he, there's one that... Was re- this the or the origin of this document is November the twenty third, nineteen sixty three, all right, and it's it's from Richard Helms, okay, it's to the FBI. Now, re- now to understand why this is important, I have to do something that you'll never see those idiots on the mainstream media doing. I have to explain a little bit in advance of what the story, the official story is, and then what this document says, all right. The official story put forth by David Phillips, and I, I don't have to explain who he is, right? Uh, Phillips was um, – David, David, David Phillips was, was stationed in Mexico City at the time Oswald was supposed to have been there. Okay. All right. And he also ran the CIA's anti-fair play for Cuba committee. He's long been a suspect in the JFK case because he was seen meeting with Oswald. Right. He, he may have been his handler. Didn't he escort him to those radio interviews? No, 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 no. no. no? Phillips met him at the Southland building in, uh, in Dallas in the first week of September. Okay. All right. He was seen. Okay. Now, David Phillips had always said that there are no tapes of Oswald because they were destroyed seven or eight days after Oswald was there. And Oswald left October the 1st. Now, this document, November the 23rd, by Helms, said that they did voice comparisons on the tapes, and it's Oswald in Mexico City. Hmm. Now, <laughs> talk about not being able to get your story straight. Right, the tape that was destroyed. He heard the tape that apparently I, was destroyed. The tape that was destroyed. 
played back then in October, okay, are now being used for voice comparisons, okay, in November. So who's lying here? All right? And this is see, and this see, when I read something like this, it gets me so furious because it shows you there was never an investigation of the Kennedy assassination. Because if they would have had all the documents, any real lawyer or investigator, you know, would have would have tried desperately to get to the bottom of this. Now, who's lying here? Is Helms lying here in November the twenty third, or is Phillips lying about what happened on October the first? All right. And if if somebody's lying, then the obvious question a real investigator asks: Why are they lying? Well, aren't they you know? both lying? Because uh, I mean, I, 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 he wasn't in Oswald wasn't in Mexico City, was he? Well, that's that's what I tend to believe. Yeah, you know, that's what I tend to believe. Yeah. All right. Now, another interesting document is an interview by Drew Pearson, who was a very famous newspaper columnist back at that time, and he's traveling in Europe, and he meets up with Nikita Khrushchev, and they talk about. The Kennedy assassination, and Pearson is trying to push the Warren report on on Khrushchev, and Khrushchev does not buy it for five seconds. He thinks it's all a bunch of baloney, okay. And Pearson is trying to argue with him, okay. Now he goes, no, no. And by the way, there's other documents that show at the the whole top level of the Soviet government, from the KGB to the Politburo, none of them. None of them believe the Warren report. Okay, and so we so we put that together. Let's name some other people. Charles de Gaulle never believed the Warren report. Castro never believed the Warren report. LBJ didn't believe the Warren report. Bobby Kennedy never. I mean, how many people do you have to reel off? All right, I got to take a timeout, Jim. Hold on, we'll come back. We'll delve further into the JFK files with James D. Eugenio. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. James D. Eugenio is with us, the author of Destiny Betrayed, which is about the uh, the garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and we are talking about the, uh, the release of the JFK files. Uh, you were mentioning... Uh, Drew Pearson, who was one of the nation's leading syndicated columnists at the time, and he, this guy was a Washington insider. He he sort of bought into the the official version of the Kennedy assassination, and he's tr- he meets up with Nikita Khrushchev, I think, in May of '64. He's trying to convince Khrushchev that it, that the, the assassination went down the way we're told it did. Khrushchev didn't buy it. Castro didn't buy it. Uh, and it's interesting. A, a few years later, it was I de, think de, de Gaulle yeah, didn't buy it either. No. And then, and then, uh, and then, uh, Pearson's uh, colleague um, uh, Atkinson it was a Jack At- uh, Jack Anderson. A few years later, he he blows the whole thing wide open and, and uncovers this plot that uh, the CIA hired Johnny Roselli to kill Castro back in '62, and they were and they were he was hired by Bobby Kennedy. 
Well, no, that turned out not to be true. Oh, is that right? Okay, that that part of the story ended up not to be true. Okay, right. it, it was deliberately kept from the Kennedys. Ah, okay. all right, but they did they did right. hire Roselli to kill Castro. The CIA yeah, did. Yeah, the CIA did did recruit Roselli, Giancana, okay, and Traficante. And by the way, the media is talking about like that's a new story too. You know, that story's been out there for my God, decades. You know. All right. Oh, but but that directly relates to my next the doc next time I was going to talk about. Yeah. This one is from March the tenth, nineteen seventy five. Okay, it's from Gerald Ford, who's now president, uh, to his assistant Phil Buchan. And at this period, this time period, is when all this stuff is starting to come out. Okay, in the wake of Watergate and the Church Committee, you know about the crimes of the CIA and the FBI. And one of them is what we just mentioned, the CIA mafia plots to kill Kennedy, right? And when this is all coming out, um, Ford writes this memo to Phil Buchan. He says, the first matter relates to the Warren Commission. You'll recall that Bill Colby mentioned to me – and by the way, he was a CIA director in 75 – mentioned to me certain assassination attempts. Sponsored by the agency on Castro. As I recall, this conflicts with what I recall was some of the information furnished to the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission, as I remember, addressed the question to see what, if any, relationship there may have been to the attempts on Castro, which would cause retaliation against Kennedy. Now, this is this is a remarkable because I I'm I'm not sure exactly how to take that because if if it reads the way that I think it's being uh, that I believe it says then it, I think Ford is saying that the commission did hear about this stuff but he can't recall it perfectly right that's what it sounds like to me yeah and so but as everyone knows the official story is. That the Warren Commission didn't hear of these things, you know. So again, this is something very, very startling when when I read that, because the story has always been, you know, for fifty years that the Warren Commission didn't have any inkling about those plots. But in this memo in '75, Ford is hinting that they did hear about them, hmm. you know, which is really, really weird. Okay, you know, uh, it's really bizarre. It's a real twist on history, if it's true. Now, here's another one, and and again, I, before I read this, I have. There has been no more firm supporter of the official story. Okay, that Oswald killed Kennedy, Ruby killed Oswald, and there was no conspiracy. Than the New York Times, all right, really. I mean, even now. You know, the New York Times is, you know, because when this story is all over the place right now, you know, uh, but even now the New York Times, you know, is is trotting out, you know, their their hacks, you know, that the, the Oswald. OK, now this is a document. February the 1st, 1967. All right. From William Brannigan, who was one of the chief investigators at the CIA, at, excuse me, FBI headquarters. All right. By letter dated January 23rd, 1967, 
The Central Intelligence Agency informed the Bureau that it had received a report from one of its sources that the New York Times is working on a special project involving a full-scale expose of the Warren Report. According to the CIA source, the project will find that the Warren Commission original findings were not reliable. Hmm. Now, when I read that, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Okay. <laughs> that the, the New York Times was going to launch a full-scale expose of the Warren Commission? You know, nobody, nobody's ever heard of that one before. No, and it didn't happen, right? obviously. Now, now, yeah, okay, but now that's the right question, Richard. That's the right question. The right question is, well, if they were going to do this full-scale expose of the Warren Commission, what happened? Right. Well— I'll tell you what happened. Once the CIA got that information from their informant, they called up Alan Dulles, and Alan Dulles was a very close friend of the Sulzberger family, which owns the New York Times at that time, and so I think they still do. And that's what happened to that expose. I'll bet you, you know, $10 to one that that is what happened to that expose. He's, he squelched it, all right? All right, now, here's, here's another one which I had never seen before. I think, although this is, I think this is an FBI report or a telex, all right? Robert Kermit Patterson contacted Dallas today. He had info about the information about President Kennedy. Patterson said that he... And the friend of his, Donald, I think it's Donald Stewart, operated the contract electronics store on Elm in Dallas. A, a couple of weeks ago, which would have been the beginning of November, Jack Ruby and the subject visited the contact contract electronics and wanted on and wanted on this occasion. Ruby told Oswald to write the names of of Patterson and Stewart in the Carousel guest book. All right. Ruby told <laughs> Oswald to write. So, in other words, Ruby and Oswald were together. Right. Right. I mean, we've okay. we've long suspected that, but this would tend to support that, obviously. Requested Mike work at the Carousel, and were paid by the employees. All right. Now, here now, let me let me say this. I've been doing this for pretty much either full time or half time for about the last twenty seven years. I had never even heard of this document before. That's huge. It it draws a connection between <laughs> Ruby and Oswald. Nobody's reporting on that. That's huge, Jim. I've n I've never even heard of this before. Okay? And here, 54 years later, okay, here it comes, you know. And, and, and the thing is, how, you know, what, where was the follow-up on this? Because I, I, it's an orphan document. I, I don't see anything that's related to it, you know, but it's a bombshell document. I'll say. And it's being totally oh, – no one's – it's being totally ignored. Right, right. Nobody's ever seen it before. Now, why isn't the mainstream media – why isn't Wolf Blitzer reading that document? 
you know, on TV. Exactly. That's really new. All right. All right. Now, here's another one that goes to what I see as one of the big problems we have with this case, which is the media. All right. All right. This is an FBI document. All right. And it says that NBC was preparing a documentary to be televised as soon as the Bureau's report on the assassination is made public. Advised by NBC's policy will be the tele NBC's policy will be televised only those items which are in consonance with the Bureau report. Holy smokes. Isn't that terrible? I mean, that, that, that is really terrible. Yeah, it just shows you nothing has changed. It was that <laughs> – it, we think that what's been going on the last uh, you know, presidential election cycle uh, where you know, the, the mainstream media was in the tank for one side, uh, it was always thus, it would appear, Jim. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so now we got it in their own words. You know, it's, it's always nice when you get the – yeah, unfortunately – it's fifty-four right. years later. Yeah, okay. yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna air anything uh, that doesn't jive with the, the official FBI version of events. Yeah, right. that's that's uh, very revealing. Can I ask you something very quickly? Uh, we're heading into a break here. You mentioned Brannigan, the FBI agent, uh, a, a little while right. ago, and uh, I mean th- this is uh, this was a guy that um, you know his investigation led to the convictions of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Uh, so he was he was a, a top notch investigator. Brannigan was, uh, but right. but there's also something in the, in this latest release um, where um, Brannigan. This was a memo from Brannigan, uh, and it was information being passed along uh, that uh, Lyndon Johnson was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Is that, oh really? I I didn't hear that one. Yeah, this is a um, this is a part of this release, and it says that that uh, it says here. Uh, let me see where am I quoting from? I'm not sure if this is uh, this is part of a CNN uh, report. I think uh, I, I've just pasted it under my email. I'll have to go back and find it. But it says in the memo below, Brannigan is passing on information to William C. Sullivan, who at the time was the head of the FBI's domestic intelligence division. The information passed along counts more as rumor than anything else, though perhaps with an added flavor of credibility, given that the source claiming then-President Lyndon Baines Johnson, who ascended to the White House after Kennedy's assassination, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, might well have been in a position to know. So, uh, I mean, what do you make of that? Johnson, a Klansman. I've, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. I've, I've read several biographies of Johnson, but I've never run across that information before. All right. I'll, um, I'll send you that, uh, that story, and you can All have right. a look at that. All right. Okay. So as we head into a break, um, just sit tight, Jim. We'll come back, and uh, we'll go over some more uh, classified documents recently released. And uh, James D. Eugenio is just the man to do it. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a heads up, next me- next week on the uh, transmission, The Man Who Killed the Cure. Uh, playwright Luke Yankee will be with us to talk about uh, the murder of uh, Dr. Max Gershon, who uh, reportedly had a cure for cancer. And uh, he's... Um, this is, uh, I guess, in, in play form. I don't know if this is going to uh, see the light of day on Broadway, maybe off-Broadway, but uh, it's, it's all about uh, the great Max, Dr. Max Gershon, the man who killed the cure. Luke Yankee will be with us. Right now, James Eugenio stays with us. We're talking about the uh, JFK uh, assassination collection uh, that has been released, and we were talking about... Uh, I just sent you a PDF of that file uh, about LBJ being a member of the Klan. Oh, thank you. And, I'll, I'll, I'll check that out. Um, let me just read it here because it, it, it also brings up the connection between uh, Oswald and Ruby. Um, and this is coming again from Brannigan to Sullivan at the FBI. References made to an article on the investigation of the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, and this is uh, dated April of 64. Um, so references made in the March 15, 64 issue of The Counselor, which is uh, um, published by the Citizens Council of, of, of Louisiana – for America's everywhere, Americans everywhere. The article was a dateline of New Orleans claims that the counselor was in New Orleans to make a fresh search into the assassination matter at the request of the Dallas District Attorney's Office. In addition, the article claims the Dallas District Attorney's Office enlisted the counselor to check reports that Oswald and Rubenstein, apparently Jack Ruby, convicted killer of Oswald, were connected in employment matters. Uh, Then it goes on to say, Ned Touchstone, editor of The Counselor, has been identified by a confidential informant as a member of the original Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. The source advised in December 63 that Touchstone claimed the Klan had documented proof President Johnson was formerly a member of the Klan in Texas during the early days of his political career. Uh, So there's kind of a two-four in this document. You've got uh, claims that they were investigating the um, the um, relationship between Ruby and Oswald and, and on employment matters, and then also Johnson being in the Klan. Anyway, I've sent that to you, so you have a look at that. So what's uh, the, the next document you want to refer to, Jim? All right. You mentioned earlier uh, about Oswald, whether he was or whether he was not in Mexico City, which is a very serious and a very puzzling question. All right. To me, what these new documents lean to is that he wasn't. Let me read you. This one is uh, from Mexico City all right, to CIA headquarters. Now, let me explain again why this is important. Yeah, why is it important whether or not Oswald was in Mexico City? No, no, no. I, I, w- I want to explain the information first. Okay, all okay, right. Why that's important. The CIA had two informants in the Cuban embassy, all right? They were codenamed Litamil 7 and Litamil 9. Now, this report, I think, is that the date and the uh, the timestamp is blurred, but I think it says November the 28th. It might say the 26th, all right? Okay, 
the last paragraph says, all right, neither Little Mill 7 nor Little Mill 9 had any personal knowledge that Oswald was ever present in the Cuban embassy. <laughs> well, <laughs> if anyone were <laughs> – all right. Now, 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 why is that important? Because – he was supposed to have been at the Cuban embassy three times. Right, right. So the idea that both of them could have missed him all three visits or that nobody talked about him, you know, or anything like that. And supposedly someone had him on tape. Well, except we know that wasn't his no. voice. Okay. All right. So when I read that, I go, oh, my God, this story is becoming so far-fetched. You know, and so unbelievable. You have to believe so many weird things to believe Oswald was there. Just you know, explain. And now you have two eyewitnesses who said he wasn't there. Right. And and you know? they were embedded in the Cuban embassy for that expressed purpose, obviously, to know stuff like that. Right, right. Explain very okay. briefly, Jim, as we head into another break. This was a short segment. Why was it important uh, for the narrative that, that uh, Oswald was in Mexico City? Because that was used, it was actually grabbed upon by the Warren Commission as to show that Oswald was really a communist, all right? And that further, that this is why he was so determined to kill Kennedy, all right? Okay, because, you know, he's actually visiting down there, he wants to escape to Cuba. And then he's visiting with the guy who's head of assassinations in the Soviet embassy. So that's why it was so important. Right. And now it appears he was never there. Now, we never saw the guy. (laughs) Exactly. All right. See, this is why I have you on, Jim. These are little details. They're not little, but they're sort of buried in there. And you're able to connect the dots. And these are important matters. So, again, these documents tend to suggest Oswald wasn't in Mexico City. We have documents that tend to suggest Oswald knew Ruby before the assassination. This is important stuff. All right, back in a moment. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740. Or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. James D. Eugenio stays with us. The website, kennedysandking.com. And uh, he, the author of uh, Destiny Betrayed. We are uh, talking, of course, about the uh, JFK files released this week. I wanted to ask you uh, about this one. Uh, This has to do with a, a local newspaper in Britain. Uh, called Cambridge News, which uh, received an anonymous tip about 25 minutes before Kennedy was shot in Dallas. Uh, And the uh, copy of the memo, again, released by the National Archives, and it had gone um, unreported. Now, I think this was actually released back in July. 
Um, and then it was released again in the latest batch of documents. But uh, according to the document, the deputy director of the FBI, James Angleton, sent to the director, J. Edgar Hoover, said the British Security Service, MI5, had reported that the call was remade that was that the call was made to the senior reporter of the uh, Cambridge News. The caller said only uh, that the Cambridge News reporter should call the American embassy in London for some big news and then hung up. And after word of the president's death was received, the reporter informed the Cambridge police of the anonymous call and the police informed MI5. Wow, that's uh, pretty interesting. What do you make of that, Jim? Well, there's actually more to that story um, because... Uh, there was a gentleman named Albert Osborne who was in Europe at that time. His hometown was Grisby, all right, and um, he had re- he still had family there, although he had gone to Canada and then the United States. And I'm not sure if you know this, but Albert Osborne was allegedly on a bus with Oswald going down to Mexico City. Aha. Uh-huh. I right? didn't know that. And there's a 90-page report on Osborne uh, that was part of the Warren Commission documents. And most people who study him, including people like me, and we have an article on our website okay, uh, about him by an, uh, another author, all right, seem to think he was some kind of CIA agent. Hmm. So it, th- that would seem to me pretty logical – assumption that that might have been Osborne on that phone call. Ah, interesting. Right. And why would he that is why would really he tip interesting, isn't it? Why would he tip them off? That is really interesting, isn't it? It is. Uh, why would he tip okay. them off? Why would he tip them off? Well, that's that a way? hell of a good that's a hell of a good question. But remember, it was anonymous it was an anonymous call, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, so he wasn't giving away his identity. Okay. You know, he was just he was just telling them, you know, 25 minutes, there's going to be something big at the American embassy. You know, very interesting. To say the least. You know, and the fact that, you know, they they never got to the bottom of that. I mean, that's really bizarre (laughs) that they never got to the bottom of that, you know. But that's the way, you know, this whole case is. Nobody ever got to the bottom of anything. No. And a lot of loose threads just left there. Yeah. What right, else jumps now, out? What uh, else jumps out at one you? One of the things, one of the things that when you go through these documents, you'll see, is that almost from the beginning, almost from the beginning, that the FBI had had coverage on all the critics, almost everywhere. The CIA had coverage on the critics in Europe, like Joachim Justine and um, Thomas Buchanan. All right. And one of the targets was Mark Lane, right? Something I didn't know until I read this document today, all right? I always wondered why they concentrated so much on Lane. February 26, 1964, the Warren Commission has been set up for probably less than two months. Howard Willens, who's a very important member of the commission, all right? Meets with the FBI, a guy named O'Malley. O'Malley says to Willens that he had heard from J. Lee Rankin, the chief counsel, that – and I want to say this carefully because I want everybody to understand what this means. 
the Warren Commission wanted wall-to-wall coverage on Mark Lane. All right, and he said that because of that suggestion, he was going to go ahead and write a letter to Rankin. Okay, being more specific about what exactly that he wanted before they arranged it. Isn't that sickening? Mm, I'll say. I mean, that is really sickening, isn't it? It is. It I, is. Oh my God! Now, now, you want to hear something? That this gets coupled with this. All right. Tommy Boggs, who was the son of Hale Boggs, mm-hmm. all right, um, who – and this one is 1975 when the church committee is beginning. Hale Boggs, the, who was on the Warren Commission, who disappeared yeah, afterwards. Yeah, seven Warren Commissioners, yes, mm-hmm. all right. All right, he's, he's telling – I think this is an FBI document, all right. He's telling the FBI that his father showed him dossiers. The FBI compiled on critics of the Warren Commission in an attempt to discredit them. Uh, he said, quote, they weren't basically sex files. They had some of that element, but most of the material dealt with left-wing organizations. So this, you know, going all the way back to 1964, this has been a very conscious effort on the part of the FBI. And now we know the Warren Commission to discredit the critics of the of, of the official story, right? And that's it, where that's, the term conspiracy theory came from. Was the uh, was right, was right, uh, right. as you know to design to discredit that, that came from a CIA memo, right. A couple years later, nineteen sixty-seven. Okay, now here's another one. Oris Pena was a Cuban FBI informant down in New Orleans who owned a bar called the Havana Bar. He was being interviewed in 1975 by the church committee, okay? And he's telling them that he often saw Oswald with FBI agent Warren DeBreeze outside the Customs House building, Hmm. all right? And many, many times they were talking, and he came to the conclusion that they knew each other very well. He says DeBreeze threatened him not to reveal this stuff on his initial testimony before the Warren Commission. All right. So there's another witness that says Oswald, you know, was was not what he was supposed to be. He was actually some kind of, you know, FBI informant on the one part. So he was meeting with the FBI, uh, with DeBreeze, and, and also, of course, we know about, um, you know, supposedly meeting with uh, Guy Bannister. Right, right. Um, by, by the way, there's a very interesting document on that also, is that the INS, the Immigration Naturalization Service, actually followed Oswald because they were looking for David Ferry, all right, because Ferry was associated with all these Cuban exiles. Many of them were in the country illegally. As they followed Ferry around, they saw Oswald going into Guy Bannister's office. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it doesn't get very much better than that, does it? Okay. <laughs> you know, no, well, it really, it doesn't, you know. So, um, now, there's one more thing, all right, that I wanted to talk about that one of the still redacted documents, all right, um, is about 
the CIA investigation of a Bell Chase naval station that was one of the training grounds for the Cuban exiles. All right, um, and I think uh, this was in February of 1961. That document, like I led off the show with, is very sadly it's redacted in several places. I find that very interesting because we know that the guy who's in charge of sterilizing that training ground, that means after the Bay of Pigs, making sure nobody clearing out all the equipment and everything, right. making sure there were no traces. To say, the guy who was in charge of that was David Phillips. Aha. Uh-huh. And you want to hear something else? Ferry was there. So I would love to see that document with no redactions, okay? Right, right. Because I got a funny feeling that's the reason it's redacted. Okay. Have you been through yeah. all of the documents at this point? Uh, not all of them. No. So no, no doubt no. that you will find a fi- large part of them, yeah. You but no doubt you will find some some more jewels. Uh, while the yeah. rest of the mainstream media is sort of proclaiming that this is a big yawn, that there's nothing in there, <laughs> you're you're digging out these these wonderful little gems, uh, again, that tend to suggest Oswald was not in Mexico City uh, and therefore was not plotting his escape to Cuba, uh, and that Ruby um, and Oswald had some sort of an employment uh, agreement at some point. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and that LBJ, well, uh, was a Klansman. Well, wait, 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 let me expand on that employment thing. What okay. I think they're talking about there is a previous document that came out years ago was that Oswald used Ruby as an employment reference looking for a job in New Orleans. (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) word. Well, you know, Richard, when you don't know you're being set up for the assassination, you do dumb things like that. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Unbelievable. Uh, what about the remaining? Was it how many? How many uh, are supposed to be released within the next 180 days that were held back? Well, uh, according to Trump, who you know we have government by tweet down here. Okay, he says that there are about 300 still left. Right now, you know what's so interesting about that is because those are files on E. Howard Hunt, David Phillips, William Harvey, and James Angleton. Aha, there should be some juicy things in there. Right, and, and they're, they're, they're not just one or two pagers. Those are like you're talking, this, the shortest one is 100 pages. How do you know this? How do you know that? Because the, when the National Archives, when Martha Murray, Murphy, who's in charge of this project, mm-hmm. when she began releasing the documents in July, she prepared an Excel spreadsheet. Oh, I see. Okay. Of what she had. All right, and she let that out. All right, and that's some of the information that's on there. So these three hundred that are due within the next one hundred and eighty days, according to Trump's right. memo, th- these could be the most important of all. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Fascinating. So, th- so there'll be you know pretty interesting stuff I think in there, you know. But they'll be heavily redacted, no doubt. Well, if if that's the case, then there, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a few days in court. I because hope so. the law says there's not supposed to be any redactions at all. Okay, none. All right, there's no reason to have any redactions 54 years later. It's outrageous. You know, they're, they're, they're still doing this crap. Absolutely. Jim, thank you so much. Yeah. I will speak to you in a few weeks on Coast to Coast. 
Okay, good night, Richard. Thank you. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed. Uh, the website, kennedysandking.com. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, Ryan White, all of you for listening. Back next week with a brand new program, The Man Who Killed the Cure, a play about uh, Dr. Max Gershon, Luke Yankee, my guest. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.